Hey everybody, welcome to another week with Startup Sales. Today we have Roman Lavalt with us of Partech uh, Partners. Now they are a VC that are really integrated into the community. They've got about 1.3 billion euros under management. They have uh, over 140 portfolio companies. So they really know what they're doing and they really are uh, familiar with this uh, startup scene. And Roman is a general partner there and he's going to share his perspective uh, on sales and what they should, what you should be doing as an early stage uh, startup. So really good episode today. Hope that you enjoy it. And, uh, and let's get started with Roman Lavalt. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Hey, Startup Sales. Uh, before we jump into today's episode with Roman, wanted to talk about the Startup Sales Bootcamp that we've created. If you're an early stage uh, startup and you need help building your sales processes and, and you're a technical founder and you don't know where to begin, then the Startup Sales Bootcamp is perfect for you. We go through everything that's needed and by the end of the bootcamp, you walk away with like a sales playbook. That's everything that you can follow step-by-step and how to do so that you get your first sales. So if you want more information, head on over to startupsales.io. That is startupsales.io and find the bootcamp link. Let's get to today's episode with Roman. Roman, thanks for joining us. Hello, Adam. Thanks for having me. Lovely. So can you give us a little bit of background about who you are and what your experience is? Sure. Um, so currently, I'm a general partner at Partech, uh, which is a relatively large VC firm, uh, originated in San Francisco in 1982, and now headquartered in Paris, um, and as well with offices in uh, Berlin and London. Um, we manage uh, $1.5 billion um, today uh, across different stages of so seed, venture, and growth uh, investments, uh, mostly in uh, four areas, uh, Europe, uh, US, with a, a big focus on Silicon Valley, um, Africa, where we have, uh, we have offices and a dedicated fund, dedicated team, and Southeast Asia, where we're starting as well. Uh, before that, I was actually uh, funded by Partech, so this is how it, it started. Um, so I joined uh, Partech seven years ago, uh, over from uh, a large software company called Daso Systems, which acquired my startup uh, in 2011. And uh, my startup was a AI software company, actually way before it was uh, the, the current hype. Um, and so we <laughs> were- Marketing keywords. Absolutely. And we were deploying um, AI software for industrial companies in uh, automotive, aerospace, and pharma. Wow. So it's really interesting. You made the switch from like actually being a founder and coming with all that experience. Does it help you in, in making investment decisions? It does. It, it also puts the bar very high uh, just because the, the, I know that some things are very difficult and they're more, more difficult from the inside. So I'm, 
compared to what you think. Uh, sales is one part of that, actually. And so, um, yeah, it helps It helps making choices um, about new investments, but more than that, it helps connect to fellow entrepreneurs and support them. Because I've been there, I had Partec from my seed round uh, all the way to, to the exit. So I've, I've seen those stages. The, the only thing that I need to pay attention is not to, um, to draw too much from my own experience and try to clone this today because it's, it's 15 years or 20 years later, the world has changed. Uh, so I also, <laughs> yeah. I also have to recognize that things are different. But yeah, I mean, the ups and downs of the entrepreneurs are, are relatively similar. And so that helps uh, supporting our own entrepreneurs today through that journey. All right. So what's one of the... Um the biggest mistakes you're seeing in your in like this early stage companies in getting their sales going because you said this is one of the toughest things it is it is especially in in our tech business where a lot of the founders come from a, a clearly a tech background and I, I like that i mean i i like founders to be close to their product and have uh, have expertise in what they're doing but one out of two doesn't know anything about sales they've never sold anything uh in their life and first mistake that they make is to believe that marketing is optional. And, and that's a mistake I've made. I'm an engineer. Um, and it, I started by the product and, and I didn't really want to hear about having someone, uh, a marketing department or someone that would tell me what to, uh, what to put in the product or how to uh, describe it, pitch it, etc. And And I would have done this, if I had to do it again, I would do this much faster, probably from day one having not only product marketing, but also someone that is more um, on the, the, the pitching, the story, the, the branding. Um, so that's the number one thing. The number two mistake I've, I see, and that's actually one of my filters, is founders that do not work on their pitching skills. And, and that's something you see from the first five minutes. And because um, if you think about it, a founder will sell all the time. They sell to VCs, they sell to future employees, they sell to clients, and they will sell to an acquire one day, maybe to the market, to public markets. So pitching skill is, is a core thing that they need to acquire. And I mean, some people have this in their DNA. To be honest, it's, it's pretty rare for a tech person, but that's something you can work on. Uh, and that's, I know it's something I've worked on personally, and that has been one of my biggest payoff in terms of his personal investment is to develop this. And so for some people, it's it's not natural and it won't be. So at a minimum, they need to to have someone that joins the team, the exec team quickly, that will have that kind of skill. So pitching. And of course, there's a sales component to that. Um, pitching and framing the story around your product uh, is, is essential. Because most founders don't realize that the people that they talk to, especially in, in enterprise sales, the people that they talk to get pitched all day long. They receive pitches like 10, literally 10 emails per day with new startups, new products, etc. And why would they talk to you versus the other nine that they, they, they were exposed to today? And so you have to stand out, but you also have to understand what they're doing. So I, I, one of the obvious um, improvement that I see in most pitches is that they talk about the product. Here's what, here's a technology, here's what it can do. Blah, blah, blah. They never really start from the pain that the customer is experiencing. And that, that is really the first bridge that people need to, to build early in the conversation is to paint that picture almost in a Hollywood style. I mean, it's like 
the end of the world and this is what is happening and that's why it's so it's so crazy that no one is fixing this and and in their mind the people that are listening they say yeah yeah that's the problem we're having and then i'm interested if you have a solution and that's that's the start of the conversation so that's the other thing um I've got a long list of things that I've, I've also <laughs> seen like this, so I don't. I, I can I can keep going if you want. Um, I I do, but let's 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 stick on this pitching idea for yeah. for a minute. Yeah. Uh, I'm so glad that you said like talk about their pain first, and I find and tell me if you find the same thing that most founders are like ignoring that and they come as you said look, just looking at the features of their product but not actually doing the research into who their clients are they just think okay this will sell it's a good product they don't do the research into what problems they're having how their daily workflow will change using this product and etc that's that's clear and that's also why some of the best speeches i've heard were from founders that had experienced the problem firsthand on the other side so people that have worked in this industry for a few years and, and they had this problem and they just say, well, no one is fixing it, I will. And those are the most credible pitches. It, it's not always the case, of course. I mean, it's a, it's a luxury to have had the time to gain that experience, et cetera. So, but at least, yeah, doing that research and knowing what the problem, but also knowing what is the problem of the person you're talking to. It's not just about knowing what is the industry problem or in this company. It's going to be the, a very different pitch if you're talking to a CEO or N minus uh, four, yeah. because the everyday life is very different, and the things that they will be atten- their attention will be around different things. Uh, so there's a, a lot more psychology in this in this pitching part than people think about, and that's the, another investment that I think founders need to to make is to read about about psychology and things like this. There's a great book, by the way, called uh, Pitch Anything. That's, pitch uh, Anything. A, a, yeah, a good recommendation. Okay. All right. And so what's the difference? What do you think is like the main difference between pitching to, to you as an investor than to pitching to the potential buyers? Yeah. The, the, in terms of uh, vision, pain, uh, product, relatively similar, um, there are two things that differ. It's, it's one is alpha of our decision, if not more, is around the team. And why is this the winning team on this market? So a customer, of course, it's important for them, but they, they're buying a product, they're buying a solution, and they want the, they want trust that that this will go as planned. In our case, um, we know that there's so it's so critical for a startup to have the right team versus the other ten startups in the exact same field, in the exact same moment, with a lot of great funding as well that are also trying. So our question is always, why this team versus the others? Um, and we want to feel like it's a good mix of expertise, of experience in that domain, of complementary across the founders, uh, pitching skills, and by the way, pitching in English. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, especially as a, as a, as a non-American or non-English uh, VC, I'm very sensitive to this um, because in no French startup or no... Swedish startup, et cetera, will, will basically make, become a billion dollar company in, in their home country. It's too small. Yeah. So they need to get out. At, after Series A, at, 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 at a minimum, they need to get out of their country. And the problem is, if their pitching skills in English are not as good as in their native language, they sound dumb. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. it, it can be perfect in their, in their native language, but then when you speak English, people don't get it or just, they, they just, 
it's 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 really really hard and so that's that's the other part so team is an important aspect the other one is basically the kind of trajectory that the, the company can have especially uh, when we invest as early as seed so we take the maximum risk we want the maximum reward and the reward is at the end of the journey so we're looking five seven nine years uh, ahead of time and the question for us is can this be the kind of company that can be a hundred million or billion dollar exit and and only a few point of a percent of the companies actually make it and it's a lot of ingredients and it's basically about the ability to attract larger and larger rounds of funding and of course not everything has to be there from day one but after practicing this exercise for now seven years so we we hear about three thousand pitches a year you now can tell what kind of team and pitch and story sounds like something that can raise 50 or 100 million in the next round. So yeah. it doesn't mean it's going to be successful, but there's clearly a, a good correlation between that and the ultimate success. And I know that this this part is not easy to paint. It's, it's kind of it's a, the ability to paint a trajectory and a story that convinces um, VCs that yes, it's not just about this round, it's about your ability to make it to the next rounds. And of course, that's not part of a customer conversation at all. But everything, it starts, it really starts with painting a pain and a market size that is big enough so that we believe there is a huge opportunity that is not yet addressed by legacy players or other well-funded startups. You, you just said something that it, selling like the, the future is important to investors, but it's not important to, um, to prospects or to potential buyers. And I would, I would disagree with you. And I think it needs to be in a different way, in a different manner. Because uh, selling for early stage startups myself many times and selling to large enterprises, they're okay making that, that risk as long as they believe that you're going to be there in the future. And so you right. have to build confidence with them as well. No, that's, that's, that's accurate. I think there is uh, a, a slightly different a slight difference of horizon. So we're actually looking at two horizons. It's interesting because when people give us a business plan over five years, we're only looking at your one and your five. We know that your five is is totally bullshit. Whatever <laughs> made happened, up numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, first it's made up and two, it's wrong. They're, they're gonna be at higher or the lower level, but it, there's no way it can be predicted five years ahead. So we know it's wrong but it paints the ambition of the company. And, and, and that is, is a direct reflection of, of the, the ability of the founders of what they think of themselves, what they're capable of, of building in terms of sales, of fundraising and team, et cetera. We also look at your one because this is much shorter term and, and we need to be convinced that, yeah, at, at the low level uh, and short horizon, they're, they're, they can execute. They're, we have the pipeline, we have the resources, we have the product, everything is in there. If I connect to how prospects look at it, so prospects want to be reassured that over the short term, yes, we can deliver the, the value prop, it can be implemented, the users will be happy, we can support, blah, blah, blah. The big fear, and you're right, you're perfectly right, the big fear is, okay, if I give you my data, my customers, my users, whatever, are you still going to be around in two to three years? And that's actually, interestingly, where we come in. So 
it actually um, happens quite frequently in those big conversations that we step up as a VC and we say, look, we're not here for just a, a year or two. We're here to build a large player in that space that's going to take 10 years. Uh, we have the size to fund them. We're going to build a syndicate around us in the next round, et cetera, et cetera. So, so we step in and yeah, we have a bit more credibility than a, a startup that is just, uh, I mean, a 10 people team or, or so. And so that usually helps, um, but it's clear and it's, it's the psychological part. If you step back as a CIO, you, you're paying 10 million, let's take ERP, for example, you're, you're paying $10 million in maintenance in, in, in SAP every year. And you know you can you, you could save 90% of that if you, you would take that new startup that is doing the exact same thing at much more, more modern, lower price. The thing is, you're not going to be fired as a CEO uh, for having to pay those $10 million every year because it's, it's the way it is, and it's SAP, and no one can complain. But you can be fired if you switch the entire company away from SAP into that small startup. It's working well the first year, and guess what? Second year, they disappear you're left out of NERP. The CEO, the CIO will be fired. So as a CIO, you're scared about taking that decision because it's a huge risk, personal risk for you. And that's where there's a big disalignment between the company objective and, and the ROI for the company and, and what's in it personally for the decision maker. Yeah. And that's, that's part of it. And that's where also we have to step in. Um, that's also why, I, I, I knew this from my previous life as an entrepreneur by, 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 by Partech, and it was also my frustration is that 10, 15 years ago, VCs were not really doing this for their companies. They were funding, potentially opening a few doors, that's it. And when I joined, I said, well, we need to do something better for our entrepreneurs, especially in B2B where this relationship is, is tough. And that's why we decided to internalize a biz dev team for our startups where basically we, we play that role of being the, the stressful uh, third party that is in between. We're not selling, but we're, we're here to make sure that people can talk and can adjust the heartbeat. The heartbeat of the startup is every day and the heartbeat of a corporate is a month or a quarter. Um, so we're here to basically remind everyone that there's uh, a decision to be made and et cetera, but it's all long-term, we're also here. And we also built our own network of large corporates we we brought 39 large corporates as investors in our funds for that so people like uh, visa Bertelschmann, uh, accenture loyal uh, uh, time warner etc so big names that we use this is the first circle of people that we use for the the business development effort but it's super hard as a startup uh to get that credibility and trust from from large companies that's the number one problem in my opinion not the product. How, how would you say is the best way to approach that if you don't have the, a big uh, VC like yourself standing behind you? Yeah, so in the sense of that, um, it's, it's hard. And that's also why the, the, you look at the license contracts, uh, there are always a lot of clauses, and you know it's the exact, it's the, the symptom of this, clauses that say change of control or, or I'll, I'll get access to your source code if you go under, et cetera. There's a lot of those provisions that are exactly here for that, that problem is that the legal department is freaking out about what happens if anything wrong happens to the company. So outside of this, uh, I would say working with, with partners, um, 
So a large reseller, uh, you take an IBM, an Accenture, uh, Microsoft, or basically it's, it's, if you can't establish the trust yourself, find a third party that has the credibility, credibility and size and track record to be a proxy. And yeah. ideally someone that this company is already using. So they trust them. Um, so sometimes it's okay to give away 20, 25%, maybe 30% commission uh, in exchange of gaining that trust uh, and long-term visibility from the client, because in the end, you're going to make more revenue. It uh, also helps with uh, procurement, because then okay. you're, if, they're buy, if they're already buying through IBM or already buying through Amazon, then, hey, yeah, I'm already an approved vendor. Just buy. Absolutely. 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 It's, it's interesting. So that large company, uh, Dassault System, that I've, I've, I've actually uh, knew know now from the inside when they became my acquire. It's it's the second largest software company in uh, in Europe. It's uh, about 15 billion in revenue. Uh, so second after SAP. When they started as a startup, um, it was 30 years ago, they went through IBM as a reseller in the US. And this is how they landed Boeing and all of the defense contracts, because there was just basically no other way that an unknown French startup could work abroad uh, with defense contractors uh, for the exact reason. And, and IBM was already uh, uh, referenced and they had the, the credibility, et cetera. And by the way, IBM also committed resources for support and maintenance at level one maintenance and things like this. And that's part of establishing this trust. So so I think it's, by the way, it's, it's in addition to any support that a VC can provide, because I think in the end you may need both uh, to establish the credibility that a small startup needs. And then after some time, the best credibility is your customer base. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a critical mass game, but when you have large customers that are willing to talk, that's the best, uh, the best way to, to build that trust. Testimonial videos, case studies yes. help so much. Absolutely. Even if they don't read them or watch them, that is just knowing that there's a name there. Hey, look, exactly. we, we have IBM as a client. Well, Absolutely. done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. You said something else earlier that a company uh, won't become a billion-dollar company selling to its own, its own country, uh, if it's a smaller country, not U.S. And this is for all the, the listeners that aren't in America. Because I come up along a lot with uh, different founders that they always want to go through their sphere of influence. And I tell them, push out of your sphere of influence because it will help you get more traction quicker and get the get the more attention of the VCs. What do you say to that? Yeah. So so um, of course, there's, there's, it depends where you're starting from. Uh, countries are different and cultures are different from from that perspective. Um, but because we're basically looking at the end game, which is usually a company that is established over multiple countries, the faster you can give proof that you can sell outside of your comfort zone, um, the better in terms of, uh, of attracting larger funding rounds. There's also, it's not just for, for, for working with VCs in my opinion. It's also the fact that you would be surprised how many companies are working on the exact same project same space at the same time and, and sometimes literally in the same week we receive three pitches that are identical everything everything is the same from three, three different startups three, three different regions of the world never talk to each other which means that and that's those are behind those three there's probably another 20 
that are also trying that we don't know about, which means that every founder should be convinced that their product is not unique, whatever they say, um, that there is someone else that is doing the same. The problem is if you if you feel like your first step is first to acquire customers in your own country, and then you'll see in two, three years uh, to move abroad, but that time, someone else will have taken the other markets. It's a race to go fast. And, and I found that gaining customers from abroad is actually a way to convince your customers at home. In, in my experience, we never went as fast in France, and we were a Paris-based Paris startup. We never went as fast in France from as the moment we landed a few logos in the US. Because yeah. people get a very different image of your startup once you land international customers because they believe you're much bigger than you are. Yeah. So coming back to this trust thing. Absolutely. I say, saying that, one of my pet peeves when I, when I see new clients, new businesses' websites is they always put their team on there. And on the, on the main website, on the main page, it's like, no, that makes you seem small. Don't, don't do that. You want to build the trust. You want to make yourself look big and like uh, fluff your feathers a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's part of marketing, actually. Yeah. Um, when you say, I want to go way back to the beginning now, because when oh. you said marketing is like, uh, is not having marketing is not an option. What kind of marketing is best? I mean, are we talking about PPC, SEO? What do, what do you recommend for these early stage startups to, to start getting going? It's it's in the end it relates to your your go to market. Um, so of course it could be like freemium self service. Uh, so in this case, it, it's going to be all about. I mean it could be blog post, SEO, uh, sometimes even Facebook ads. I've seen that working. Uh, it, it's interesting because you can target people personally. It's one of the most impressive tricks that I've seen in that space in the freemium space. So like small cheap software is that um imagine you write a blog post that is um on, on a certain topic so the one i have in mind was um software uh, admin uh software for gyms so people that run gyms and studios and, and yoga etc and want to uh, have a small erp that can also handle invoices and customer orders and things like this so it's a niche relatively large yeah. but it's a niche and so the CEO had, had written a blog post about running a gym and, and the right software for that. Inside the blog post, there was a Facebook pixel um, that is used. it was using to retarget the owner of the gym on their Facebook page so they could see an ad for his software. That was the best conversion I've ever seen in, uh, across all of the tricks I've seen in that, in that, that low end. So a mix of regular b2b marketing um, approach and and some part of the b2c targeting the decision maker personally which was really intriguing it works because this the basically the customers are very very small companies where the decision maker is also the one that the the user etc um, all the way up to enterprise sales where in in this case it's very different um and marketing will be a, a mix of uh, physical events. It could be that like, and when I mean physical events, it's not just showing to trade shows. It's, it's building a, a community. Um, one of the best tricks I've seen in this space is um, selling, well, basically not trying to sell. Yeah. And the idea is uh, imagine you sell to, you sell a cybersecurity software and 
what you do is to build a community of uh, chief security officer or chief uh, information officers that will meet every quarter and exchange best practices, etc. And you run this. And that is the most pof- powerful trick because they associate your name to that to the other um, experts that they uh, they have a lot of respect for and and they learn things at those events etc and then it's actually the absolute best way to sell your product um, so so you have to think in a in an original way because startups cannot win the money battle they are always better funded or large companies that can spend much more dollars on the exact same events the same thing so they have to think in a different way um, so it's, it's, I haven't seen one size, uh, fits all type of, uh, of recipe for, for B2B marketing, but I'm always looking for things that are very, um, uh, disruptive also in the way they're, um, they're doing this. We're funding one company, uh, that is really intriguing from that perspective. Um, they're in the U S it's called Matt Kudu and they work for, for SaaS companies. SaaS companies that have a freemium approach. So in freemium, you have free users for some time, let's say 30 days, and then you want to convert them to the paying version. What is interesting is because we're in SaaS, you could see a lot of actual real-time data on how people are using your software. Yeah, so, so this company can actually take uh, the actual data uh, that you're recording without knowing uh, from the usage of the users while during the free period, the free trial period. And after a week, you know already um, who is using the software in an addictive way, uh, who has not used from the first day and they basically dropped. So you can adapt your uh, marketing message to those people to convert them. So send them an email to reactivate their usage, or if you see someone that is already addicted, push them offers to convert today. And they basically build an AI system that does it fully automatically. So so uses your existing marketing channels to reach out to the users automatically and serve them the right message at the right time to convert them into paying. It's fascinating. And those are the kind of tricks that we're looking for um, where companies can actually win. And winning with data is usually a safe bet. Yeah, it's so important to have those insights too to see how people are using it and if they, what you, the changes you make increase usage and decrease usage and where, where in the usage patterns it changes. So it's, uh, it's vital for sales as well. Yeah, it, it's easier, of course, when you have shorter sales cycles because you can do a lot of A-B testing and try different things and see, see where you get the best ROI in terms of marketing and conversion. It's slightly more difficult in enterprise sales where you have six months to 12 months of sales cycles. That's also why our bar is higher for those types of startups is because we, we're a bit harder to be convinced uh, that that sales are actually scalable. Uh, it's, yeah. it's tougher. All right. Um, last question for you is you had a company a few years back and now you've gotten to work with hundreds of companies. What What's the most impactful thing that you've learned now that you wish you had uh, back then to help that would have helped you with your sales? (laughs) The the, the number one skill um, outside of pitching expected from a founder is the ability to recruit talent. I mean, this is so important across the board. Uh, It it should be a half of their time spent on, half of the time is on talent, the other half is on funding. Uh, if, If if they're doing anything else, it means that they're not delegating enough. 
uh, of the other jobs, like selling. Uh, typically, a CEO that sells is great, but it's not scalable. Um, and that's also one, uh, one of the, the things that are limiting some, some companies is that they fail into transferring that magic of sales from the CEO to, to a, a more scalable, a junior sales team. But talent, and it, we make so much mistake. It, this is human. I mean, when you meet someone, you don't know. I mean, it's like it's like in love. You don't know if it's going to work. Um, and mistakes are very expensive, not just for the time it takes, but the, the, the cost of opportunity. You've lost six months. And maybe you, you, you're, you're screwing up with your, your next round of funding because of that. So it's super critical. And recruiting salespeople is even worse because by nature, sales guys sell themselves well. I mean, that's yes. this, this is the nature of, of this business. And so it's... Not easy to know if a person is really good at selling or if she's really good full stop. And yeah. uh, and the problem with long sales cycle is that it takes six to 12 months to actually find out. And sometimes it's too late. And it's hard. So one thing I would do uh, differently today is to to rely much more on the headhunters early on. I know it sounds expensive. It, it sounds like, no, I'm a small startup. I don't need a headhunter. Yes, you do. You do because these are people that have professional ways to, to screen people. They can read between the lines. They've tracked down those people over multiple years and multiple jobs. So they know their history. And most of the time, the good ones can actually provide almost a psychological um, analysis of the profiles. And there's so much you can learn from that. Because in the end, it's not going to be one person. It's going to be a mix of talent together. Uh, and, and that is very hard to do. So any external advice um and help you can get on that on that that front is super useful and that also means you need to bring a chief people officer relatively early in the company probably not before series a but from series a onward absolutely okay and, and when should the ceo stop uh selling and hire somebody to to take it over for him um, I would say as soon as there is product market fit. Um, so when you see that that basically a few customers are, are now buying the exact same thing for the exact same use case, it, it's, it's done. But it's only two or three customers. You don't need to wait for 20. Uh, yeah. in, in the first phase, it's okay when you're basically still trying to find what is the exact use case. Or it, it would be a waste of your energy to try to delegate a process that is not fully scripted already. You, you need, yeah. I mean, basically, you need to be able to say to a new sales guy, okay, here's what you, the kind of pain you need to be looking for and the kind of decision maker and here's the script and the typical ROI calculation, et cetera. That doesn't happen on day one. Um, but I would say if, if it doesn't happen after a year, there's a problem somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you, uh, Roman, so much for joining us and, and sharing with us. Uh, how could people reach out to you if they want to get more information? Thank you, Adam. Um, so best way is uh, probably my uh, email, um, so which uh, I'm sure you will, uh, uh, you will include. Um, okay. And um, well, otherwise, we have, a, we have the, the contact address on the Partech website, which uh, goes into our mailbox. So we get a lot of, uh, of pitches this way. And yeah, the best the best time to reach out to us is actually not uh, when you're fundraising. It's before that. Uh, we, we like to hear about teams outside of any fundraising process just to know that what they're doing, et cetera. And, and if they give us a uh, heads up that they're going to be raising in three to six months, but now they're just um, 
um, basically starting conversation to see if there would be a fit. This is the best approach. Again, you're not selling. Um, so we can concentrate more on the personal relationship. And then uh, it's much easier for us and much faster three to six months later when they come back and say, look, now we're raising. You remember what we said three or six months ago we would do? We've done it. Now is the right time. And this is usually the best, the best approach. And um, one thing not to forget as well in this business, in the VC business, is that most of the deals that actually get funded come through a hot recommendation. So someone that you know that knows the VC. And it, it, in a way, it works the same way than for a prospect. Uh, it's much, much, much more effective than cold calling. We get cold called all day long, all the time. Uh, so going through someone that you know, reaching out to one of our entrepreneurs, we have 175 companies, so it's relatively easy to find one entrepreneur. And I've never seen any entrepreneur in our portfolio that would refuse to make an introduction to us. But that's, that's a good filter. It could be through our investors or mutual friends. I mean, on LinkedIn, you're two steps away from virtually everyone. So. <laughs> yeah, that's what LinkedIn is for. Exactly. All right. I'll put the I'll put your email and also your LinkedIn in the uh, show notes for quick access for everyone. Sounds good. Roman, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Adam. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Contact Adam about speaking engagements or consulting services at adam at startupsales.io.